1: Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. The White House correspondent for the U.K. newspaper The Independent, Andrew Feinberg, reports that special counsel Jack Smith will ask his Washington grand jury to indict Donald Trump for violating the Espionage Act and for obstruction of justice no later than a week from today and as early as today. And not just that, but The Independent also reports that Smith has been rather clever The anticipated indictment of Trump about the stolen documents would be for violating 18 U.S. Code 793, gathering, transmitting, or losing defense information, which does not require that any actual documents in question be classified. It merely requires that there is defense information involved and that the accused stole it or told others about it or lost it. That in turn means that the cornerstone of Trump's specious defense, that a president can declassify whatever he wants, whenever he wants to, doesn't have to tell anybody he's done it, just does it by thinking about it with his superior mind, that entire defense is irrelevant. Classified, schmassified. If it's national defense information, you can't gather it, transmit it, or lose it, and if you do, you, quote, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 10 years or both. The timing caveat, quoting The Independent, it is understood that prosecutors intend to ask grand jurors to vote on the indictment on Thursday, today, but that vote could be delayed as much as a week until the next meeting of the grand jury to allow for a complete presentation of evidence or to allow investigators to gather more evidence for presentation if necessary, unquote. The caveat from a news consumer's POV should be this. As of recording time, there is no separate reporting yet confirming what the Independent published, that the indictment vote could come as early as today, nor that it might be delayed until next Thursday, nor that Smith's first shot at Trump will have 18 U.S.C. 793 written on it. However... Feinberg's rival Hugo Lowell of The Guardian says Trump's lawyers were told last week by Smith's office that he is a prosecutorial target on the stolen documents and the obstruction of justice. The New York Times says Trump's legal team was notified he is the target on the handling of the documents, but no idea when that happened. CNN says the lawyers were sent a target letter. Politico reports the target letter as well. ABC News reports the target letter. The Times adds, quote, aides and advisors to Mr. Trump spent the day in a state of high tension. I bet they did. The Trump response to all this on social media, no one has told me I'm being indicted. Aw, the felon is always the last to know. It had been Trump lapdog John Solomon, ironically one of Trump's official representatives to the National Archives, where all this began, who published a piece yesterday claiming that federal prosecutors had just notified Trump's team that he was a target of their investigation and had told them an indictment in the documents case was imminent. Trump then posted to social media, quote, no one has told me I'm being indicted and I shouldn't be. I've done nothing wrong, but I have assumed for years that I'm a target of the blah, 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 And how could that statement also be true? Maga Haberman got hold of Trump and she says he would not answer when he was asked if he was told he was a target and he insisted he had not been told he was being indicted. And then he reminded her that he was not in direct touch with prosecutors. So it could be legally true, but not factually true. We know for a fact that Trump spokesman and apologist Taylor Budowich testified to the Miami grand jury yesterday because he immediately self-martyred on Twitter about it and then claimed Trump was being persecuted and had to be reelected and all the usual stuff you have to say to keep getting a Trump paycheck. The Times seemed to explain why such a low-rung, low-life as Budowich would have been called, He may have been asked about a statement that Trump allegedly ordered his staff to put together in January of last year, in 2022. This would have been after he returned 15 boxes of material to the National Archives. In the original draft of the statement, Trump said he had returned all the presidential material he had. That was in the draft. The actual Trump statement of January 2022 did not claim he had returned all the presidential material he had. The Times reports prosecutors are fascinated by the email chain within Trump World about the draft statement. And I'm just guessing here, but there could be some extraordinary admissions in that email chain like, what the hell, we didn't return everything or something similar that would go directly to obstruction of justice. If, like me, you are trying to digest all this and you are now saying, Wait, that's it? One charge for a fine or a maximum term in the pen for 10 years? I want Trump breaking rocks. at sing, 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 sing until the year 2525. Wait, back to the independent. Its report emphasizes that an indictment on one charge from 18 U.S. Code 793 by Jack Smith's Washington grand jury, plus whatever they're doing on obstruction of justice, is far from all of it. That Trump may also be indicted on other counts within the espionage umbrella and potentially for obstruction of justice. And that Jack Smith's mysterious Florida grand jury is still operating separately and further indictments could emanate from there. The Washington Post, in fact, reports that the bulk of indictments could come from the Miami grand jury, which could give us a scenario in which there is one indictment in Washington today or next week and many more in Florida in the weeks to come. Obstruction of justice, by the way, could get you almost anything. Federal cases have ranged from probation to a 20 year sentence to they don't even prosecute. The Guardian had one more relevant nugget to report. At the Miami Grand Jury, an unexpected face popped up. That newspaper spotted Jay Bratt, the chief of counterintelligence for the Justice Department, arriving in Miami day before yesterday. It reported that Bratt was expected to be leading the questioning of witnesses in Miami, like this P.R. Flack Budowich. Bratt's presence is fascinating on many levels, not the least of which is the fact that he was the first one at the Justice Department to see Trump's foot dragging on returning documents more than a year ago as worthy of prosecution. More importantly, to the point of what's to come, I will repeat his title. Jay Bratt, Chief of the Counterintelligence and Export Control Section of the National Security Division of the Justice Department. Unless they've got it wrong and he was there as a witness to tell the grand jurors his experiences with dealing with Trump and his crowd... He is not there unless this is an espionage act case or even worse, an espionage case in the more familiar sense of the phrase, as in the defendant sold our secrets to another country. There is one other detail reported here, and I'll give myself a one second pat on my own back because the way I saw it, the question was, which of these animals is bigger? Your choice is this mouse or this elephant. Back to the independent, quote, Mark Meadows has already given evidence before the grand jury and is said to be cooperating with the investigations into his former boss. It is understood that the former North Carolina congressman testified as part of a deal for which he has already received limited immunity in exchange for his testimony. A source who was briefed on the agreement claimed that the alleged agreement will involve the ex-chief of staff entering pleas of guilty to unspecified federal crimes. The Independent then says the Meadows' attorney, George Terwilliger, said the guilty plea story is, quote, complete bullshit, unquote, but that Terwilliger would not then answer any questions about Meadows and immunity or Meadows and testimony. Oddly, Terwilliger was not asked if he is related to baseball infielder and coach Wayne Terwilliger or to Robert Underdunk Terwilliger Jr., which is the real name of Sideshow Bob on The Simpsons. It's been a long week. And on that note, I have no sympathy for Mike Pence. None. But maybe... Maybe I have a sliver of empathy for him. He finally announces his candidacy for the Republican nomination. He finally blasts Trump by name. He says on January 6th, Trump demanded that I choose between him and the Constitution. I chose the Constitution. I always will. And then he goes on CNN for a presidential town hall and they asked him about Trump. And he says no one is above the law. And then he says they shouldn't prosecute Trump. And the story breaks that Trump... Might be indicted in the morning. Might be indicted in the... Wait. I feel another song coming on. Might be indicted in the morning. Ding dong, the locks are gonna chime. Pinch me and jail me. Book me and bail me. But get me to the trial on time. Thank you, Nancy Faust. Also of interest here, Tucker Carlson may be sued by Fox and Chris Licht got fired by CNN and he got fired like 500 feet from my house. Yes, I sure sang a few songs about that, too. But the real issue isn't Chris Licht was a guy who at MSNBC we used to think ate paste. It's that he was a guy who at MSNBC we used to think ate paste and who wasted 13 months of the collective life of CNN at a time when democracy is imperiled, wasted it by searching for a great white whale of utterly neutral cable news that does not exist and will never exist and has never existed in more than a quarter of a century. That's next. This is Countdown. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you run for office or take on the country's biggest problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home, pests. You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know intricate political strategy, but they know their local pest pressures, and with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today.
2: Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart.
1: This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Post scripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions, Dateline, CNN Headquarters, Hudson Yards, New York. Last licks, CNN cans Chris. If you hear anywhere that Chris licked left CNN, don't believe it. He was fired. Even the New York Times says he was fired. 7 a.m. Wednesday morning, offed by Warner Bros. Discovery boss David Zaslav in the middle of a walk through Central Park near my house, which explains all the smoke we got here during the day. Times also says two CNN anchors recently gave Licht votes of no confidence, Anderson Cooper and Jake Tapper. I don't know if I've ever mentioned it here, but bluntly, I never thought Chris Licht was a good choice to run CNN. Just between you and me. Okay, enough with the self-abnegating disingenuousness. I first mentioned Chris Licht here on August 19th of last year, the 15th episode, and this is episode 222, because as I suggested, if they had conducted a nationwide search for the worst person to run CNN, and they found him or her, and they were about to introduce that person to the world and then said, oh, wait, we forgot Chris Licht, they would have switched to Licht at the last minute because he would have been worse. And he was. So it was assumed that my reaction to this would be glee. Glee or at least relief, and as a CNN alum who had his first job interview there before they signed it on in 1980 and who worked there from years two through five in sports and years 22 and 23 in news, I guess I am relieved because the first of my points from the beginning was, yes, Licht was at MSNBC when I was, and I also dealt with him briefly on Colbert, and he was an absolutely irredeemable bastard. And worst yet... I've worked with a lot of those. He was an absolutely irredeemable, unqualified bastard. And I'm going to rerun my comment from August 19th of last year just to give you a real time flavor of my experiences and predictions. I'll run that later. But my second and more important point was that Chris Licht should never have been hired in the first place by CNN because he was not only pursuing a white whale, he was pursuing a white whale that clearly does not exist And everybody else in his industry knows it does not exist. Chris Licht was fired, at least he was fired yesterday, because of that magazine piece in The Atlantic, and to a lesser degree because of the Titanic-like bad publicity of the Trump town hall. He was fired because he made the company look bad and got it bad publicity. If you have any doubt of that, please note that two of the other three people offed by CNN were CNN's communications chief. And its publicist, who infamously directed a screeching Twitter screed against Jennifer Rubin of the Washington Post in defense of the town hall. They were fired. And Licht was fired. And they were all fired only because of bad publicity that reflected badly on Licht's bosses. The point is that Chris Licht believed two plus two equals five. His bosses may still believe that. It turned out it does not equal five. I am confident that Licht will spend the rest of his life believing that it does equal five and that he just somehow failed to convince everybody else of that or didn't use the right graphics. It may still exist somewhere in other media. It may be like those periodic reports over the last century that there really still is a passenger pigeon somewhere out there and the species has not been extinct since the year 1914. But there is no middle in American cable news, and the pursuit of that middle was doomed from the beginning, and it could not have been successful under some other kind of Chris Licht from a different dimension who wasn't a schmuck and didn't didn't know what he was doing. One can argue that the premise of going to the middle by people who think Brett Baer of Fox was the middle was a cover story for throwing CNN hard right, and I think that's true, but it's not really central to the key point. There is no middle. There's no real middle in cable television news, and there is no pretend middle. Nobody wants to watch that. Ask the folks at News Nation, formerly WGN America, which claims, quote, unbiased U.S. news is its pretext and which has been on the air for more than two years now with a lineup I have previously described as the Nick at night of cable news. Chris Cuomo, Ashley Banfield, Dan Abrams, Elizabeth Vargas and occasionally Bill O'Reilly. The audience for a given half hour or hour on NewsNation is smaller than the audience for the podcast you are listening to right now. And thank you for your confidence in me. And don't get me wrong, but if a TV news network cannot outdraw me on a podcast, there's something wrong with the premise. You may lament the passing of utter political neutrality in cable news. And given my history, I think you would be surprised at how much I am in sympathy with your viewpoint. But it is the reality... And it has been the reality since the day in 1996, when first MSNBC and then Fox signed on, and it is not going to change. You can have all the town halls you want and all the new graphics, and it's not going to change. There is one neutral news outlet on cable, and unfortunately it is a monopoly. And it is a monopoly in large part because it's non-profit and it never really could succeed as for-profit. And it's called C-SPAN. And other than one phone-in show, it just runs live coverage of hearings and press conferences. And sometimes I watch just that, and I think that's biased. And yet, there continues this quixotic pursuit of the illusion that some numerical formula of balance, some calibrated both sides will eventually vanquish networks that have a point of view. It won't happen. You could take over Fox or MSNBC or CNN tomorrow and apply that kind of rigor and calculation to the vetting process to make sure that every statement of opinion is written first, is based on fact, and is beholden to accuracy and checking and rechecking, and you could clean up the propagandizing that has consumed Fox and infected MSNBC and is the founding principle of Newsmax and the like, And I think that would make an unexpectedly enormous improvement in quality in cable news. And maybe, maybe an enormous improvement in audience. Or even just stop the hemorrhaging. Quality. That original concept that is so often overlooked in assessments of any form of news or television or both. Quality. Might goose a given network's ratings a little. But... The cult of imaginary objectivity is deeply seated in the management of television news even to this day. They all want to go back to Cronkite and Huntley Brinkley because they were young then. They want to go back to Cronkite and Huntley Brinkley without remembering that Cronkite and Huntley Brinkley and the various ABC anchors of their eras were on the only national television channels in the country. And if you wanted not to watch any of them, your choice was usually either cartoons or reruns of McHale's Navy. For the younger group running TV news, it's a dream of returning to, say, CNN 1991 and the Gulf War, and that's great, and it's not a bad aspiration to keep in your heart. It might help you rigorously check your sources and the information on which you base your opinions. But in 1991, not only was CNN the only cable news network in America, but it had been for 11 years, and it would be for another five years, and it had, in fact destroyed rivals launched and then quickly killed off by abc and cbs yet seven and a half years ago on the off day of the 2015 world series here in new york i went to the essex house hotel and had a secret meeting with the then chairman of nbc news andy lack and the then president of msnbc phil griffin and they offered me a new show on msnbc i think the idea was 10 p.m weeknights for half an hour with a co-host on one important premise that I would never do another political commentary on MSNBC in my life. You know, those, what did you call them? Special comments. Those were the worst things that ever happened to MSNBC. Andy Lack said, you know that, right? I mean, what America wants is the cable news version of the New York times. I mean, I saw you once on there and you were so loud and angry about Bush. I thought you'd lost your mind. I, I literally thought you'd lost your mind. And I said to my wife, Betsy, I think he's lost his mind. And I called all my friends. I said, you have to watch MSNBC right now. Turn it on right now. I think Alderman has lost his mind. And everybody tuned in. And then we all tuned in again the next night to see if they'd fired you yet. We watched every night after that, just in case. <sighs> I did not explain to Andy Lack. I stopped myself. I did not explain to him that, although I disagreed with his out-of-your-mind terminology, he had not only just described what success in cable news television now looked like, but he had just proven my point, that I was right about it, and he was wrong. He will never believe otherwise, but the point he made was... people watched. That's the first stop on the process. So, yes... Chris Licht was a venomous worm who deserved everything that's happened to him in the last year, and the bottle of champagne opened at CNN headquarters yesterday was matched by an imaginary one here at Olderman HQ, but he could have been a prince, and the ultimate point is the idea didn't work, couldn't work, and won't work. And there is a larger issue that actually dwarfs all this comparative minutiae, of course, Exactly what are the two sides you are presenting in the political news of this country? What are you being objective about in the cultural news, in the scientific news? One side is flawed, bumbling, self-obsessed, aging. The other side, it's trying to end democracy and replace it with any flavor of authoritarianism it can get away with. And oh, by the way, one of the side effects of that authoritarianism will be the elimination of places like CNN by violence, whether it is run by this Chris Licht or some perfected Chris Licht or me. When people have asked me about balance and not taking sides and advocacy networks and opinion, I ask them, how would you have wanted me to cover Joe McCarthy? How would you have wanted me to cover World War II, the Civil War, the American Revolution, Yes, that may be true. On the other hand, General Cornwallis insists. Licht insisted to The Atlantic that when his words, we are not an advocacy network, we are providing something different. And when the shit hits the fan in this world, you're not going to have time for that advocacy anymore. Well, the shit has hit the fan. Its name is Trump. And to oppose Trump shit, you must be an advocacy network. I guess. Whatever. I'm just doing a job here. You can call what you want. But practically speaking, just as newspapers lost their monopoly on breaking news and radio lost its monopoly on breaking news and broadcast television lost its monopoly on breaking news, so cable news has lost its. Cable news can be a factor, maybe even a decisive factor in coverage of live events, but that is no longer enough. And if you are internally rigorous about exactly what your commentators say and how much they have to back up their opinions, you can be both. You can be a pure news organization. You can advocate for, you know, a a non-totalitarian America. And you can also make money doing both these things at the same time. Back when I was at MSNBC doing those special comments... The ones that made Andy Lack think I'd lost my mind, but he and his friends started watching every night just to check. That role, that special comments guy role, was kind of balanced by another guy at MSNBC who handled all the MSNBC breaking news. The Pope dying, the bridge collapsing in Minnesota, the elections, the blackouts, the inaugurations, the death of Michael Jackson. He even had a side hustle doing football on Sunday nights. He was the painfully objective face of that painfully objective breaking news side of MSNBC. And all that stuff, the breaking news stuff, that used to make money too. And his name was... Checks, notes... Me. There is no middle. And more importantly... For cable news to be a success financially and journalistically, there does not have to be a middle. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you run for office or take on the country's biggest problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home, pests. You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know intricate political strategy, but they know their local pest pressures, and with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. I have been talking about Chris Licht and CNN since the 15th episode of this podcast last August. I want to play again what I said then. First, so as if there weren't enough fun stuff for just one day, Fox has notified Tucker Carlson that he has breached their contract. They may sue him. This is about the thing he uploaded to Twitter on Tuesday night, which he identified as episode one of his new series. It was sad. Anyway, I don't often take the employer's side in stuff like this. In fact, I can't remember if I've done so in this century or a previous one. But Carlson says a Fox executive has told him they want to sideline him until 2025. And bluntly, they can do that with rare exceptions. And I know what those exceptions are. I had one in my contract at NBC. Television contracts basically require the network to do only one thing. Pay you not play you, just pay you. That's all. So if Tucker Carlson's contract reads that he can't appear elsewhere, even on Twitter videos, Fox can enforce that as long as they send him the check. They could negotiate a deal in which Carlson forfeits some or all of the money and then is free to do whatever he wants. But Fox does not have to do that. They have total control of this situation. Carlson's lawyer has responded to Axios that Fox is violating his client's First Amendment rights, which is nonsense. I mean, if they stopped him or tried to stop him from tweeting, that would be probably violating his First Amendment rights. But doing videos for profit or planned profit for another company that is technically a rival to Fox? No. Sorry, Tucky. You lose. Plus, as somebody who uploaded my GQ resistance series to Twitter and then my Alderman versus Trump series to Twitter and then the promos for this podcast series to Twitter, boy, was that Tucker Carlson Twitter video underwhelming. He just isn't good enough to stare into a camera and carry a static shot for two minutes, let alone 10 He needs to be doing those interviews with the reaction shots to the guest comments where he looks like a dog who was just shown a card trick. Tucker, I know you don't care about my advice and I don't care if you take it or not. But if this is what the Twitter series is going to look like, take Fox's money and go on a round the world cruise through next year at their expense. Yesterday, CNN canceled its weekly show reviewing the media, Reliable Sources, the only such program in mainstream television. CNN also fired its host, Brian Stelter, after nine years at the network. I've had problems with some of Brian's work since he founded the TV Newser blog while he was in college in 2004, later at the New York Times. But I've never had any problem with his intent nor his work ethic. And his stuff on CNN made him such a target from the far right that you would have thought he was me or that he was on the air 17 hours a day on CNN rather than once a week. The reason was simple. After MSNBC cut a deal to stop calling out Fox News, pretty much, nobody in television called out Fox News and the rest of the lunatic right propaganda machine, except Stelter. His firing was no surprise. You may not know it, but CNN was recently taken over by a company owned by billionaire Trump donor, John Malone. And Malone intends to very gradually reduce CNN to, at best, 24 hours a day of both sides-ism. Think Michael Smirkanish on a loop. Stelter did the most damage to the right. Therefore, Stelter was the first to go. He will not be the last. CNN's new president, Chris Licht, is there to dismantle the liberal parts of CNN. I know this because I worked with him at MSNBC where he decided that part of his job was to try to dismantle the liberal parts of MSNBC. When Stelter was fired, The Daily Beast's impeccable media guy, Lachlan Cartwright, reported that, quote, everything about this rollout points to Discovery board member John Malone and Discovery CEO David Zaslav. A source familiar with the situation told The Daily Beast, Chris Licht did not want to do this. I'm sure the quote is accurate, and I'm sure whoever told Cartwright that believes the quote to be true, but it misses the point. What Chris Lick wants to do is whatever John Malone and David Zaslav tell him to do. He is a corporate lackey. Worse, he's a corporate henchman. So here's the story I promise not to tell. Perhaps the most amazing thing about my 10 years at MSNBC was the fact that Joe Scarborough and his producers, especially his chief henchmen, ever got their own show on the air, because nobody I have ever worked with in radio or television, in sports or news, in the 20th century or the 21st, ever spent more time trying to screw with other programs on the same network than did Joe Scarborough. And until just about the time I left in 2011, the guy he sent in to do most of the sabotage for him was this henchman guy. The reason this should matter to you now is Scarborough's henchman was Chris Licht, the new president of CNN. And if they scoured the nation to find the worst person to run CNN in a time when democracy is threatened by one political party and tepidly defended by another, it's Chris Licht. I know, I know. You turn on the TV and you see Joe Scarborough and you see exactly what I see, a blank, dazed, darting, paranoid, no soul, stupid, check engine light look. But if you don't trust me, trust my scars, my Joey scars behind that vapid face is a master saboteur. Early in 2008, the late Tim Russert called me and warned me that the GOP had upped its pressure on me. He said he had heard from somebody in New York that somebody in New York was going into the office of the president of NBC News saying that Joe Scarborough couldn't get his friend John McCain to come on to his new morning show because I was so critical of McCain on Countdown. Tim was not sure it was Scarborough, but if it wasn't, Who else could have gotten in to see the president of NBC News other than Scarborough or his executive producer? The evidence for the new CNN president, Mr. Licht, being directly involved in interfering with programming to benefit somebody else's friends or political cronies was vague in 2008, but not at all vague two years later. Early in January 2010, the Republican candidate to fill the Senate seat of the late Ted Kennedy, Scott Brown... The former semi nude model was at a rally when one of his supporters talked about, quote, shoving a curling iron up the backside of the Democratic Senate candidate, Martha Coakley. Scott Brown clearly heard the remark from the crowd and responded, quote, we could do that. On January 18th on Countdown, I did a brief commentary about how unsuitable Brown was for public office. I said he was, quote, an irresponsible, homophobic, racist, reactionary, ex-nude model, teabagging supporter of violence against women and against politicians with whom he disagrees, unquote. I had quotes from Brown. I had videotape of him disparaging his minority opponent in a local election to her face at a debate to back up what I said. An hour later, Joe Scarborough commenced a tweet storm against me, quote, Olbermann calls Brown a homophobic, racist reactionary who supports violence against women. How reckless and how sad. It's no longer enough to simply disagree with someone. I'm sorry, I just fell into my Scarborough impression. Just as when Beck called the president racist, this sort of rhetorical extremism must be discouraged. It cheapens the debate. End quote. And impression. Now, there was a standing rule at MSNBC. You want to criticize another MSNBC personality? Go ahead. Have a blast. But it must be on the air on MSNBC, and the other person must have an opportunity to reply in real time, in the same show, or in some kind of face-to-face way. No hit-and-run. No Joe Scarborough tweet-storms. If you criticize them by name or by inference in any other medium, newspaper interview, radio, social media, you were to receive an automatic suspension. The next day, January 19th, I called the president of MSNBC, Phil Griffin, and I asked how long Joe Scarborough's automatic suspension was going to be. Griffin asked me to come into the office a little earlier than usual and to go see him. He said he had already had a meeting about the tweets that morning with... Scarborough's executive producer, Chris Licht. Griffin explained that Scarborough, according to Licht, considered Scott Brown a friend. More importantly, Chris Licht warned Griffin that if Griffin followed through and enforced the suspension rule, Scarborough would have no other option than to go to the press and tell reporters, especially reporters at right-wing websites like Tucker Carlson's The Daily Caller, that he, Scarborough, had been suspended because he, Scarborough, was a conservative, but I was a liberal and that I, and not Phil Griffin, ran MSNBC. What can I do? Griffin was scared. I told him he could fire Scarborough and Licht because they had just tried to blackmail him, and eventually he was going to have to fire them both anyway, but that I knew he would not do this, and that I knew now that he would not suspend Scarborough either. And Griffin did not suspend him. Partial score, Scarborough's friends, two, MSNBC's rules of behavior, nothing. But Phil Griffin did send out a memo to the entire company insisting that anybody who criticized another MSNBC show or host in another medium would be suspended, except Scarborough, who had just done exactly that and then threatened his own employers. On January 25th, Brian Stelter's old blog, TV Newser, got a copy of Griffin's memo. They wondered why Scarborough had not been suspended, so they called the MSNBC president. And Then they printed, quote, Griffin responds to TV Newser, quote, an important rule was broken. I spoke to Keith, and he said in the spirit of teamwork and the free flow of ideas, he didn't think it warranted punishment or suspension. I also talked to Joe, and he apologized to me That's why I made the decision that this didn't rise to the level of punishment, but I felt it was necessary to reiterate my long-standing policy. 100% bullcrap. Reiterate my long-standing policy, which I just did not enforce against Joe Scarborough. The whole thing was totally fabricated. Licht and Scarborough had threatened to smear their own bosses in the right-wing echo chamber. They should have been both fired on the spot. In May 2010... Scarborough said something on the air about a Democrat getting away with not being investigated for something. I forget the details. I didn't bother to look it up. You can if you want. Then Marcos Melitzis, the editor of the Daily Coast website, and not just a regular contributor to Countdown, but somebody who had been promoting the show and the MSNBC brand on that website every day for five years, Marcos sent a snarky but legitimate tweet questioning Scarborough's credentials to criticize others who had not been investigated for stuff. Marcos invoked the staffer who died in an accident in Joe Scarborough's congressional office. Scarborough then attacked Malitzis on Twitter, inaccurately claiming Malitzis had accused Scarborough of murder. Few days after that, I got a phone call from the MSNBC president, Phil Griffin, and if he got a phone call rather than a call to come into his office, you know he was really scared. Griffin told me, Chris Licht has been in to see me. Joe won't put up with having Marcos Melitzis on his network anymore. Not only that, but Lick says many of Joe's friends, who also appear in Dayside and Primetime, won't come on if Marcos Melitzis is permitted to continue here. Chris is insisting... That Marcos be banned from MSNBC immediately, Chris says he's afraid that if we don't do that, Joe won't come into work tomorrow. Upon hearing that, I laughed and I congratulated Phil Griffin on the clear win-win he'd just been given. But Phil was very bad at enforcing MSNBC's rules, but very good at creating new ones on the spot to protect Joe Scarborough and Chris Licht and their friends. I'm banning Melitzis from any further appearances on MSNBC. I said, Phil, he's a contributor to my show. You are suspending my contributor, who has driven hundreds of thousands of viewers to Countdown and MSNBC, and I don't have any say in it. You are owned by Joe Scarborough and Chris Licht. What you now have to worry about is whether I tell this story on the air tonight, or I just wait and tell it later. Phil now got conciliatory because he was scared again and said it could be just a suspension if I cooperated. So I called Marcos. He said he enjoyed his contributions to Countdown. He also did occasional appearances on the old Ed Schultz MSNBC show. And he said if there were a chance at resuming them, he'd prefer to at least try that. So, Marcos and I went along with Griffin suspending Marcos Melitzis, and to my knowledge, Marcos Melitzis has not been seen on MSNBC since. I wish I had better notes on some of my conversations from the 2008, 9, 10, 11 era about... Those conversations with the hosts and the producers of the other shows like Schultz and Rachel Maddow's show and even Chris Matthews and Hardball, I must have heard a variation of this statement a dozen times from these people. Guess who was in Griffin's office explaining that such and such is Joe's friend and Phil really needs to make sure we lay off him. Chris licked. It was usually an expletive in the middle between Chris and licked. I remember one of my producers at the MSNBC a version of Countdown telling me that one of the other producers told him that licked had gone to NBC News President Steve Kappas with an actual list of Republicans that Maddow and Olbermann needed to stop criticizing because they were Joe's, here's the word again, friends, and we were hurting morning Joe. What's amazing is that setting aside the issues of unrevealed, torrid love affairs, when CNN fired its 9 p.m. host, Chris Cuomo, President Jeff Zucker, and Senior Vice President Allison Gollust, they fired them in essence because they interfered with CNN content and practices in order to do favors for people who were their friends, or in Cuomo's case, their relatives. At MSNBC... Interfering with MSNBC content and practices to do favors for friends was seemingly the only reason Chris Licht had a job. So, CNN got rid of left-wingers for a terrible violation of journalistic ethics, and then hired as president, a right-wing henchman who had committed exactly the same journalistic ethical problems, and who, for his act... The first one of his career at CNN killed off the only national television show that regularly held up Fox News, Newsmax, and all the rest to the world to show that they were the threats to democracy that they are. This is CNN. And now he belongs to the ages. I've done all the damage I can do here. Countdown has come to you from the Vin Scully studio at the world headquarters of the Alderman Broadcasting Empire in New York. Here are the credits. Most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel who are the Countdown musical directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chennail. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Ulberman theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN, Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Larry David, and everything else is pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 884th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Don't forget to keep arresting him while we still can, like today... And every day for the rest of his life. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh?
0: A redwood forest would be cool. Ski
1: slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. From BBC Radio
0: 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board.